Sheriff Joe Arpaio of Arizona was larger than life. He called himself America's toughest sheriff. But when he became an anti-immigration profiler of Latinos, they organized and resisted. And that changed everything. Sheriff Joe versus the Latino resistance. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your justice nerd and geek extraordinaire, ready to answer those Ask Dave questions that you might have and still hanging on by the old fingernails to that most excellent day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. You've heard his name before here on Criminal Injustice and in so many other places, Sheriff Joe Arpaio. He's the now former elected sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona, but famous nationwide as America's toughest sheriff, a brand that he and his publicists invented. They used that brand to get him elected and re-elected six times in all and to claim fame in reality television and ultimately national politics. He was an early backer of then-candidate Donald Trump, And from the mid-2000s onward, he was one of the country's most well-known immigration hardliners. His department and his deputies, and also, by the way, his posses of deputized volunteer citizens, made a regular practice of focusing on Latinos, whose Mexican appearance showed in the minds of Arpaio and his deputies that they were probably, quote, illegals his word, not mine, and were therefore arrested, detained, humiliated, you name it. We have a name for this kind of thing, of course, racial profiling. Here's an audio clip from a CNN interview in 2012. Arpaio has just been sued by the Department of Justice over allegations of racial profiling of Latinos. He's questioned here by CNN's Aaron Burnett. Take a listen. The, the Justice Department, uh, in, in the suit, what the, what the DOJ has said is that Latino drivers are between four and nine times more likely to be pulled over by your officers, um, but only about 30 percent of the population of Maricopa County is Latino. So when it looked at that way, it seems clear that there's racial profiling going on. Well, that's their opinion. Now we're going to be in court and we'll be able to put the true facts out on the table. That is their opinion, which, by the way, last month they had their big press conference saying they're taking me to court, which is very convenient. We're in an election year. Uh, so what is this, all politics? The, the timing is very, uh, very interesting mm-hmm. when you talk about illegal immigration. Well, what do you sad. say the numbers the, are? On what? Uh, in terms of on racial the, profiling. On, or how you're saying that the numbers do not support racial profiling? No, it does not. We, uh, we arrest anybody that violates the law. We don't care where they're from. It just happens we're close to the border. There he is. Numbers? Many times more likely to face stops if you're Latino than if you're not? Nah, nah. Deflect, deny. It's all politics by my enemies. Of course we end up stopping more Latinos. We're close to the Mexican border. Well, yeah, of course, because you're close to the border, a very large percentage of American citizens who live in your county where their families 
have been there for many generations longer than you, uh, they are going to be of Latino heritage. Yeah, that's how it went with Sheriff Joe. And those ways of enforcing the law were very popular with his constituents who kept re-electing him. Until, that is, a federal judge called him to account for what he was doing and until Latinos in that very same county decided they had had enough. It's an incredible story, and a new book captures it like nothing I've ever heard or read, and one of the authors is here with us today. Jude Jaffe Block is a veteran journalist and writer, and now is a reporter and editor for the Associated Press, which she joined in 2020. Before that, Miss Jaffe Block reported on immigration for more than a decade for media outlets that included NPR and The Guardian. And she was frequently heard reporting stories involving Sheriff Joe Arpaio and immigration in Arizona for station KJZZ and NPR. That was how she and I met years ago. If you use the Internet Wayback Machine, you can find stories in which she interviewed me. Along with her co-author, Terry Green Sterling, Ms. Joffe Block has written Driving While Brown, Sheriff Joe Arpaio versus the Latino Resistance, published in 2021 by the University of California Press. We've got a link to the book on our website, and it's also available through your local independent bookstore and through online stores. Jude Jaffe Block, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Now, this this great book, this takes us back to the beginnings of Joe Arpaio's uh, law enforcement time in Arizona, how he becomes the elected sheriff of Maricopa County, uh, Arizona, the most populous county in the state. Uh, that's where you find Phoenix and Scottsdale and Mesa and some of the other bigger towns. Uh, I think a lot of people listening uh, probably remember Arpaio for his anti-immigration stance. But take us back a little further. Uh, when he begins his six-term run as sheriff, uh, the characteristic and thrust that sort of defines him isn't his immigration stance. It's really his thirst for publicity. This is what the guy is really after. And he works this vein uh, pretty constantly, eventually creating this character for himself, uh, America's toughest sheriff. Talk about his early career some as sheriff of Maricopa County. Yeah, in those early days, so he was first elected in in 1992 um, and had had actually run as as someone who promised to only stay for one term, uh, which turned out not uh -huh. to be the case. Um, he was a retired DEA agent and at the time that he ran for sheriff um, and he'd been actually retired for some time at that point. Um, but his first brand, uh, I mean, as America's toughest sheriff, he was really known for being really tough on his jail inmates. And he developed Tent City, these outdoor tents where um, sentenced inmates had to sleep in the very hot and very cold weather. Um, and he forced uh, inmates to wear pink underwear as sort of a form of humiliation and punishment. Um, there was a constant stream of news stories as his media team would Kind of churn out new innovations um you know innovations week, yeah i mean it would be like <laughs> this week the jail inmates no longer get condiments or this week we've banned girly magazines from the jails and each time this would generate headlines and um he started making national headlines as this kind of no nonsense tough on crime toughest sheriff um 
you know, really punishing people and giving them what they deserve kind of brand. Um, and and there, there were also controversies associated with this, though there was a lot of positive and flattering press. There were right. also, there was at the same time a current of, of controversy. There were lawsuits about wrongful deaths that occurred in his jails. Um, there were DOJ investigations um, and things to that nature. Um, so it, it, it wasn't without controversy, but overwhelmingly he was incredibly politically popular. Um, routinely polls would show him being one of the most popular politicians in Arizona, if not the most popular. And the toughest sheriff thing really plays well, not just with his electorate, uh, the voters who, like you say, very popular with them, but he ends up getting TV shows out of this TV deals. Yeah, there were a few different reality TV shows that uh, followed him uh, or his posse or his his um, a group of his deputies. Um, and and he also managed to get booked onto. I mean, there was a 60 minutes special about him um, in his America's Toughest Sheriff days. Um, and then later, when he pivots to immigration, which we can talk about in a moment, he becomes a frequent talking head as sort of this um, tough on immigration border hawk persona that that is was regularly booked on cable news shows. Yeah. And let's pick that point up. I mean, early in his career, his first 10 years as sheriff, he's not an anti-immigration guy. And one of the things that I found really striking in your book was this couple of incidents that did come up uh, involving immigration issues in the early 2000s, I think it was. And he took the side of the person you might think of doing a doing somebody who was doing a favor or something for people who were crossing the border illegally. Can you talk about that and his his non-anti-immigration period? Yeah, well, we trace the, the real pivot moment to the summer of 2005. And to set the scene in Arizona at that time, um, Arizona voters had just passed in 2004 the first like big piece of of what many would view as anti-immigrant legislation. I mean, it, it was actually a voter proposition. So it was a voter initiative that restricted um, services and uh, to a certain kind of um, benefits to immig undocumented immigrants, but that that many were not entitled to in the first place. So it was kind of um, more symbolic than anything, but and also included more voter restrictions required voter ID and the talking points had to do with making sure that undocumented people were not illegally voting. Um, and so this this proposition 200 passed in 2004 and along with it um, kind of a there was a a new movement kind of bubbling underfoot to try to restrict immigration in Arizona. There was concerns about people crossing the border uh, from Mexico. Arizona was becoming a real focus point for border crossing. Um, and at this time, uh, Minutemen were starting to patrol the Arizona border, these like civilian vigilantes. Civilian vigilantes. Yeah, they're not part of any law enforcement agency or anything. That's right. And so 
this really starts to take off in the spring summer of 2005 there's a lot of national media coming to arizona um, coming to the border to follow this movement it's becoming known as kind of ground zero for the illegal immigration so this is the scene in arizona and there starts to be politicians who are recognizing that there is a significant base in the republican party who is very concerned about border politics and wants to restrict immigration and punish unauthorized immigrants. And so Arpaio is not on the front end of this turn. Other politicians around him start to notice this and there's a grassroots movement going on, but he is, he is not at the forefront. There are two incidents that happened that summer. One of these incidents involves a, um, a, somebody who held migrants at gunpoint and who his intention was to help law enforcement capture undocumented migrants who are crossing into Arizona, but he held them at gunpoint. And so when Arpaio's deputies responded to the scene, they arrested this man uh, because you can't wave guns at people. And Arpaio said as much. He said, you can't, you can't point a gun at somebody just because you think they look Mexican. I mean, this was something wow. Arpaio said at the time that he thought this was completely inappropriate behavior. At the time, though, there was a county attorney who had run on an anti uh, his 2004 campaign was stop illegal immigration as county prosecutor, and he took up the cause of the young man who'd held the, the group of migrants at gunpoint and said i'm not going to press charges, and there was a whole movement that. Uh, that basically uh, was saying that he was a hero that he was. Um, the man was, holding the gun. The man the holding hero. the gun was the hero that he was doing a, a citizen's arrest and doing his due diligence at a time when politicians like Arpaio weren't doing enough to stop illegal border crossings. And, and this so, becomes kind of a key moment, doesn't it? This is a key moment. And there was another incident that summer where Arpaio also, he helped a, an undocumented mother return to Mexico to reunite with children, her US citizen children who'd been kidnapped. And he sort of made this except he sort of worked with the Mexican consulate to reunite this family and allow them to all return back to the Phoenix area together. And he said as much in the press, he said, I think I'm going to get heat for this, but it's the right thing to do for these U.S. citizen children. Mm. Um, and but really, after that point, um, that's kind of the last friendly towards friendly moves he makes towards the immigrant community in a high profile way, because Arizona passes a new law that makes it a state crime to smuggle someone into the state of Arizona. Um, this is now a state felony to be caught um, driving migrants into Arizona and accepting money for that. Arpaio and this county prosecutor, uh, Andrew Thomas, end up working together to enforce this law exuberantly. And Arpaio, this is really Arpaio's shift where he he develops a unit called the human smuggling unit and they are tasked with um, going after smugglers, but they also decide that they can use this new state law to go after what they call smugglees, people who are the migrants themselves in the cars, they decide that they have committed the conspiracy to smuggle themselves and can also be charged with criminal felonies. Yeah, so th this is important. Let me let me just make sure everybody gets this. The new law in Arizona 
says it's a felony to smuggle people across the border into Arizona. It's a state crime, not a federal crime. So therefore, state authorities would have jurisdiction. People like Arpaio and like that district attorney. Um, and so you, you know, you the coyotes or whoever was driving the van of the people, of course, they would be charged. What they decided to do was to incorporate into that crime the people who were being smuggled. They were not only the subject of this crime, they were participants in this crime by way of being part of a conspiracy. Exactly. And and there early on was a lawsuit that um, we're going to end up talking about the people who organized against Arpaio for these um, immigration enforcement tactics. One of the first moves that um, some of the activists and immigrant rights community made against uh, Arpaio's enforcement machine was to challenge this interpretation of the law. Um, and what's interesting is that lawsuit was filed in 2006. It wasn't until 2013 that a federal judge said, oh yeah, that, that policy's doesn't work. It's not constitutional. That's not the right interpretation. And that law itself was actually um, later knocked down as well. And so really that the, the litigation that kind of was a turning point in changing how judges, how basically on the ground immigration laws worked in Arizona was the the big case over SB 1070, the, which we can talk about later. But but so at a certain point, some of these Arizona policies start falling like dominoes and being ruled unconstitutional, but it took a very long time. And so in the interim, in these seven years in which this policy was in place, thousands of people were charged with felonies and were very quickly deported um, as a result of, of, this, uh, of this policy that was later knocked down. Right. And sort of this is uh, uh, as the turning point and as the, the point at which uh, Arpaio becomes uh, uh, uses, be, starts using the power of his office to really go after people who are suspected of any involvement in illegal immigration, not just the people who are getting paid for it, but everybody involved. Um, the tactics uh, very quickly devolve into, uh, do you have a Mexican appearance? Do you maybe have a Spanish accent? Well, you must be fill in the blank. And so that activity becomes sort of the dominant activity that gets Arpaio into the news with which he is identified. Uh, and as you said, this is not only in local media, but in national media. And we got to say, it, it's very popular with a lot of the people who vote in Maricopa County. And, and what I've described is really just the turning point, that, like how he got into immigration enforcement. Right. It ramps up tremendously from there. Tremendous. So my, migrants, this migrant um, crackdown is the first step um, and, and really gives him the opportunity to create a unit that is focused on these issues. And then from there, it continues to expand. And so um, he starts to develop in, in two, well, in 2007, an important turning point that happens is that the federal government enables him further by giving him a 287G partnership. Right, now let's explain what that is. That's a, a special designation under federal law 
in which a law enforcement agency, and most of them at that time anyway, were sheriff's offices like his, uh, could say, we want to be partners with the federal government. There would be perhaps some training, but always partnerships. And it would effectively deputize lots of these uh, sheriff's deputies in the office with federal law enforcement powers. And that was an important uh, ratcheting up, wasn't it? It was. And, um, and, and at the time, the 287G fact sheet that DHS and ICE put out to explain this program mm -hmm. explicitly said that the program should not be used to round up day laborers or be used in non-criminal traffic stop situations, that it was intended to go after what they called criminal aliens and um, people involved in gangs and organized crimes and drugs and things like that. Um, now, what we see with Arpaio's, Arpaio ends up having one of the, the, and the sheriff's office in Maricopa County ends up having one of the biggest um, 287G partnerships um, at the time. I mean, it, they weren't the first, but they were one of the biggest partnerships in that they no had the most, the most deputies deputized um, on the streets, as well as detention officers in the jails, and both were tasked with identifying people, suspects who might be undocumented at various stages of the of the process of being arrested and booked. And so um, what Arpaio ends up doing is launching these big uh, neighborhood sweeps where he'll announce, uh, he called them crime suppression operations or um, the other name uh, was saturation patrols. Um, the community called them community raids. Um, mm -hmm. And so it depends who you ask how to how right. to call them. We, in the book, we tend to refer to them as sweeps. And these would be he would announce in advance to the media that he he and his deputies and his posse, this he had teams, these volunteer teams that would help volunteers, out. Yes, um, they would swarm a certain area. They would sort of announce a perimeter. And the idea is that there were uh, that there was a zero tolerance policy in that area. Any traffic stop any traffic violation would be would result in a traffic stop and a citation they would be looking for people with outstanding warrants um and and anything else and they also made very clear our made clear in these press releases that he would also his team would also be looking for anyone who is undocumented and they too would be arrested and so these um sweeps provoked a lot of fear in the community and the immigrant community. Um, and there was also what happened is a lot of Latino US citizens and Latino lawful permanent residents and others with lawful status of Mexican descent or of Central American descent, that tends to be the dominant Latino population in Arizona, um, they felt like they too were being targeted and um, people would complained that they would be stopped and questioned um, and that those questions would include things like asking for their social security number or um, asking for their status or if they spoke English and things like that. And that that there might actually not even always be a, a traffic citation that would come out of it. Um, and people felt like they were being targeted. And so a lot of what we, what we talk about in the book is how um, how people organized lawyers and activists to then gather evidence and create a, 
a class action lawsuit to right. stop this practice. And there was there were other kinds of ways of of targeting uh, of of enforcement that I should also mention. There was he did contrary to the the stated goals of 287G his deputies did round up day laborers and they would do these sting operations where they would follow, um, they would wait and see uh, drivers who were going to pick up uh, immigrant day laborers at, at various job sites to, to work for the day. And they would follow in an unmarked car, whatever car had just picked up day laborers. And then as soon as there was some pretextual reason for a stop driving over the speed limit, changing lanes without uh, uh, using a signal, then th they would initiate a traffic stop and and then question the the immigrants inside and arrest those who who they believe to be undocumented. One of those incidences happened to Manuel Jesus um, Ortega Melendres, and he this happened in 2007 and he happened to actually be a, a visa holder he was on a tourist visa and had been in a car that was stopped the driver wasn't cited but he and other passengers in the car were taken into custody and then transferred to ice custody ice ended up releasing him but because he had a visa but um melendras described the the humiliation the painful uh the pain in his wrist from being cuffed in a way that that provoked an old injury, um, the humiliating things that were said to him, and hours and hours first in a in a Maricopa County jail cell, and then in ICE detention before his release. That really this was a took an entire day, and he suffered post traumatic stress after this. He described feeling fearful um, every time he saw a sheriff's deputy after this incident. He lost patches of his hair. Um, so this is. This case really launched the this lawsuit, and then others um, others later joined it. And we can talk right. more about that. Yes, the 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 big lawsuit that resulted in so much of the consequences for this uh, uh, use of law enforcement power against uh, uh, Latinos took the name from Mr. Melendres. He was the lead named plaintiff in that lawsuit. Uh, but he was far from the only one, and this lawsuit kind of led to the entire uh, uh, activation in the in the strongest way of Latino activism and legal action that really did stem the tide of these actions. Let's take a quick break here. Our guest is uh, a journalist and and uh, writer Jude Joffe Block, along with her co-author. Uh, uh, Terry Green Sterling. She's the author of Driving While Brown, a great new book about Sheriff Joe Arpaio and the Latino resistance. Stay with us. We're going to come right back. You won't want to miss it. Hi, David Harris here with you back on Criminal Injustice, and our guest is Jude Joffe Block, along with her co-author, 
Terry Green Sterling. She has written a great book called Driving While Brown, Sheriff Joe Arpaio versus the Latino Resistance, published by University of California Press in 2021. The link is up on our website. Um, when we took our break just a minute ago, Jude, we were talking about how the lawsuit came to be uh, under the name Melendris and uh, how the Latino community was really finally uh, activated. Uh, talk a little bit about one of the people you discuss in the book who was really central to this. Her name is Lydia Guzman. Tell us about Lydia Guzman and the role that she played in what happened uh, ultimately to Joe Arpaio. Yeah, so Lydia Guzman uh, was raised in California as the daughter of um, a, a mother who had come to the US undocumented. Um, later, her mother gained status. Um, but Lydia grew up in California, Mexican American speaking Spanish and English, identifying both as, um, as with an immigrant community and an American one. Um, and she got politically activated when California passed proposition, California voters passed Proposition 187, which was a, an initiative in, in California in 1994 that, that many see as a sort of a precursor to the kinds of policies that Arizona later experimented with. Um, but in, in 1994, then Governor um, Pete Wilson really championed this initiative that would restrict um, services and public benefits to unauthorized immigrants but it included things like public education and um, and non-emergency medical services. And so it became very controversial. There was a huge political backlash after voters I passed remember. this. Um, and, and many credit this political fight in California as being what, what motivated many Latinos in California to run for office, to become politically engaged, to become voters. And the shift to California being such a blue stronghold um, some analysts attribute to this moment in time, um, this turning point in, in California. Um, Lydia was part of that backlash. She was involved in helping naturalize immigrants so that they could become voters, so that they could vote against policies like Proposition 187. And so as a young woman in California, she becomes very involved in voter registration, very involved in naturalization. She really wants to help the Latino community have a voice. And she ends up moving to Arizona and taking a lot of the lessons she saw happen in California with her to Arizona. And um, she becomes very central to the fight against Arpaio. Before Mr. Melendrez, who we've discussed, even is stopped in the traffic stop, Lydia is involved in trying to stop those earlier practices we talked about of, of Arpaio uh, arresting uh, migrants on conspiracy charges. And so she helps she helps find plaintiffs for a, a lawsuit to challenge that practice of, of charging migrants with conspiracy to smuggle themselves. And then what after Mr. Melendrez is stopped, he finds a lawyer who files a lawsuit. Later, the ACLU gets involved. Um, they end up uh, getting outside counsel to help them and also team up with MALDEF and ACLU of Arizona and the National ACLU. Um, so they all get involved in turning Mr. Melendrez's case into a larger class action suit in order to stop Arpaio's immigration enforcement tactics and enforce change. They're not looking for monetary damages. They want um, to stop it. 
just yes. want him to have to reform his office and stop these policies. And Lydia becomes very involved in trying to find more plaintiffs to join this case. And it's, it's very interesting and unusual how exactly she's already involved. And then, it, I mean, it's hard though, as an activist to get paid to do this kind of work. So she's trying to find a way, she's involved in a coalition called Somos America. That's a coalition of, of different immigrant rights groups in the Phoenix area. She's doing this work as a volunteer. And then she gets uh, sort of a surprise invitation from a business owner who owns several fast food restaurants. And there's so many immigration policies in Arizona happening at once. Um, another one targets employers who hire undocumented workers. Yes. And the, there's a, a segment of the business community that's concerned about Arpaio's enforcement, the other state policies that are happening, and how it will affect the business community. He ends up hiring Lydia to run a hotline, which she calls Respect Respeto. Um, and it takes calls from people in the community who are Spanish speakers, who are having, um, who feel like they've been racially profiled, who feel like they're being discriminated at work. And the idea is to both provide services to them and link them up to service providers that can help them, but also to search for plaintiffs for, um, for at least two federal lawsuits that are going on. One to challenge this, um, employer sanctions law that's going on in Arizona that that directly impacts both undocumented workers and undocumented and employers who hire them. And another is to uh, find plaintiffs who have felt racially profiled by the sheriff's office. And so she starts answering this phone call. She's being paid by this businessman. What's interesting is the businessman, whose name is Jason Levesque, at the time wanted his identity to be completely quiet because I see. Arpaio had a history of retaliating or a pattern of what many perceived to be retaliatory uh, practices against perceived enemies. And we see this play Such out, as journalists, um, too. I remember he had arrested a couple of uh, of journalists, one of the alternative weeklies actually the Phoenix put people in jail for doing journalism. And there were a number of episodes that happened with at the county level um, of uh, criminal investigations against uh, perceived political foes. Um, and and there was also seemed to be using his deputies to go raid work sites um, at places where uh, people had been critical of him. And um, and so this this happened. Um, uh, George Gascon, uh, at the time, many people will know him from, he's gone on to do have many roles. Now um, the district attorney of Los Angeles, before that, the DA in San Francisco, before that, the police chief in San Francisco, and before that, the police chief in Mesa, which is in Maricopa County. Exactly. And so George Gascon became a vocal critic of Arpaio, and, um, and Arpaio ended up uh, sending his deputies to uh raid mesa city hall where they ended up um arresting undocumented janitors there and, and many people saw that as a connection as a way to try to embarrass the city of mesa for for speaking out against his policies so that was a tangent to explain the dynamics at the time and why lydia's benefactor wanted to keep himself a secret but he ended up 
paying Lydia to do this work, he ended up paying a private investigator, um, and also um, ended up paying an, a, an attorney to bring this Melendrez lawsuit um, in, in conunction with ACLU and MALDEF. And yeah. so, yeah. This, so this was this all happening all, very behind the scenes, though, some of it. Very quietly, but it's all coming together. And when it comes together in the Melendrez lawsuit, a federal judge finally hears the lawsuit and uh, finds that Arpaio's tactics violate the Constitution and orders them stopped and orders retraining and uh, the issuance of new policies and orders to the entire department. So Sheriff Joe is ultimately, you know, his tactics are on trial and they're, you know, the, the judge finds, no, you can't do this. Not tolerable, not constitutional, not legal. And uh, that is a huge defeat, which, of course, Arpaio does not really accept. It's, you know, it's the federal courts interfering in local business and so forth. Uh, but this can't be seen any other way but as a defeat. And uh, we go on. It's maybe a year after that, some period of months. And the judge hauls Arpaio back into court. Talk about that. Well, and a, and a key thing that had happened um, is that Arpaio had lost his 287G authority along the way. And this uh -huh. happened with the transition to the Obama administration and a lot of pressure from the, the immigrant rights activist community to end this arrangement um, because with, they were arguing that Arpaio was abusing it. And um, along the way, uh, people like Lydia and other activists that she was working with were trying to highlight Arpaio's abuses even outside of the courtroom and try to pressure Washington to do something. And so that meant they had a goal of getting the DOJ to investigate and ending the 287G arrangement, which, which also happens. So the DOJ is also move, has its own case moving alongside, but it ends up being the Melendrez class action case that that's ends that sort of ends up having uh, uh, injunctions before progresses more quickly. So, but to back up along the way, Arpaio loses his 287G authority, which means that the judge finds that he no longer can arrest immigrants who are suspected of being undocumented, but who are not suspected of committing crimes. And the idea is that that is a federal immigration authority job. It is not up to local law enforcement to arrest people for being out of status, which is technically a civil violation right. of federal immigration law, as opposed to a criminal violation it would be a criminal violation if if somebody was suspected of reentry, criminal reentry, for example, after deportation. There are other examples where maybe where local law enforcement perhaps could be involved in an arrest, but not if it pretty is pretty limited just, though. But it is a limited capacity. So so the judge finds that these immigration arrests are not lawful and have to stop. And that happens as early as um, as 2011. At the end of 2011, and that there's a, that's a preliminary injunction in the case. What comes out later um, in around 2014, this starts to emerge, is that there's evidence that uh, Arpaio's deputies were never told about this 2011 preliminary injunction and had continued it 
until the permanent injunction came down in 2013. And only then did they really change this policy. So there was an intervening 18 months where people were still being arrested in violation of court orders. Um, and so when this comes out, along with a few other cases where the what the judge said in court did not happen in the sheriff's office, or in fact, the opposite happened, all of these reasons um, provoke him to have a contempt of court hearing against Arpaio and some of his underlings. Um, this then turns into a referral for criminal contempt of court because um, the judge finds that these violations were not accidental, but but in fact, willful. Mm-hmm. That's right. And a criminal case is brought against Joe Arpaio and several of his uh, high-ranking uh, administrators for that willful violation of the court's order. It's not just, uh, oh, I forgot, or I didn't have enough money to pay my child support. It is willful violation of the court's order. And Arpaio was found guilty. And he, there's a chance, not, not a big one, but a chance he may have to go to prison. But in any case, he's found guilty by the federal court of a crime. And at the same point, you've got uh, folks in the Latino resistance movement, if that's a fair way to characterize it. They're ramping up the political pressure and organizing and registering voters. And this results in the unthinkable in 2016, right? Yeah, he loses his sheriff's race. He was running for a seventh term um and uh he loses for the first time he lost and it and not it was not even close he lost by 13 points and so um by this point in and what's so remarkable about that 2016 election is that on the national stage arpaio was playing this very important role helping his friend donald trump get elected he was one of the first people to endorse trump he traveled and spoke at several of his rallies. He um, he was on the stage at the Republican National Convention. And but then in his own home county, he lost his election, but he still managed to fundraise a tremendous amount, something like $13 million from national fans all over the country to help him win this local sheriff's race. Um, but it wasn't enough in the end. Um, there were, I mean, many people were involved in helping to elect his opponent, a Democrat named Paul Penzone, including this, this movement that ar arose against Arpaio. They, they formed a campaign to try to activate uh, voters who didn't participate a, a lot, uh, voters of color, and try to get them activated to, to vote Arpaio out. They called themselves the Basta Arpaio campaign. Also, George Soros donated money to a PAC to try to unseat Arpaio as well, which benefited his opponent. Um, so all of these came together where on election night, Trump in 2016, Trump becomes president with Arizona's help that year. And but Arpaio was voted out by um, in a in a sort of a, a very uh, definitive loss of 13 points and and his efforts to reenter politics have not been successful he tried unsuccessfully to uh to to be in uh, the republican candidate for senator for arizona and he also tried to get his his old job back and um in this last time in 2020 and and also 
did not succeed. Um, so it, it's been a, a very interesting political ride here in Arizona. Some of the same forces that helped organize his defeat in 2016 continued mobilizing voters and helped uh, helped Biden win Arizona in 2020. So we're seeing a lot of um, a lot of real transformation among who the electorate is in Arizona and who's engaged in politics. Um, it's obviously a very fraught place politically right now. We have an audit going on of this right. very election we're talking about um, and a lot of disputed, you know, some people who believe the election was stolen and policies are are changing when it comes to voting and things like that. So it, it's a it's a place that's um, very much in flux at the moment. But what we saw was over the years and and starting even before 2016, but in 2008 and 2012 too, the movement to organize against Arpaio involved activating new voters, and that has changed the electorate of Arizona today. Not unlike what happened in California after Proposition 187 back in those years, we've now got Arizona having shifted politically to Democratic senators and not a little bit because of local organizing provoked by the actions of Sheriff Joe. Our guest has been Jude Jaffe Block, a veteran journalist working as a reporter and editor now for the Associated Press. Um, she and her co-author, Terry Green Sterling, have a new book. It's called Driving While Brown, Sheriff Joe Arpaio and the Latino Resistance, published in 2021 by University of California Press. Link to it is up on our website now. Thanks so much for being my guest. Thank you so much for the conversation. And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this episode's Lawyer Behaving Badly from the ever-reliable ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Jonathan Clark Baird from Kentucky. We all know that lawyers play different roles for clients depending on the client's problems, situation, and needs. The lawyer may represent the client in a lawsuit. The lawyer may represent a client charged with a crime or represent a client in a business negotiation in order to bring a deal together. And sometimes clients come to lawyers for advice on how to do things in a way that will, say, save them money, structuring a business deal to legally avoid certain kinds of taxes or government regulations. Keeping clients on the right side of the law is one of kind of indispensable advice that lawyers can give clients, and it benefits everyone concerned. But just getting a lawyer's advice does not insulate a client from legal consequences of his or her acts. And the prospect of giving advice within the attorney-client relationship does not mean the lawyer can give a client advice on how to violate the law without getting caught. In other words, the lawyer can't give the client advice on how to break the law and avoid the consequences. This seems to be the limit on lawyer conduct and advice giving that lawyer Jonathan Clark Baird forgot. 
Lawyer Baird was, once upon a time, in practice in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. He had a specialty. He advised clients on the, quote, steroid and nutritional supplement industry. Now, right there, you'd think, steroid industry? There's such a thing? Well, yes, there are legal and permitted uses of steroids that do not involve helping professional baseball players hit gobs more home runs than Babe Ruth. Nutritional supplements? Yes, you've no doubt heard of these, even perhaps taken some yourself. But you're probably also aware that the products of this industry of supplements are largely untested and unapproved for human use, and therefore can't make the kinds of medical claims that can be made about fully tested and FDA-approved drugs. So in theory, a lawyer like Jonathan Clark Baird could really help a business focused on steroids and nutritional supplements stay out of trouble and keep on the straight and narrow. For example, don't make any of those claims that the FDA hasn't vetted, he might say to a client. Or he might have told them to stop selling some items because some kinds of these products cannot be sold for human consumption at all. Now, as you've certainly guessed, this was not what Lawyer Baird did with his legally specialized knowledge of these industries. Nope. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, Lawyer Baird joined his clients in deceiving the public and the U.S. government by helping his clients avoid government rules. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, that, of course, is the Department of Justice's office in the Middle District of Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, which does a lot of federal criminal cases, Lawyer Baird helped to instruct two Internet-based companies to, quote, interfere and obstruct the United States Food and Drug Administration enforcement and regulatory oversight, including instructing his co-conspirators on the steps to be taken to fraudulently conceal the true nature of their illegal sale of prescription drugs from the FDA. Close quote. Oh yes, how easy it is to slip out of the role of legal counsel, keeping clients on the right side of things, into the role of co-conspirator in the client's crimes. These two internet companies and their individual backers, you see, were in the business of selling peptides, a type of amino acid, and other chemical substances to bodybuilders. This stuff would allegedly help to add to their muscular physiques. The thing is that none of this stuff was approved for human consumption. In other words, you can't sell it to humans for these purposes. Sports being sports, especially when there's glory or a payday to be had, people are going to want this stuff. Think Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, you know. What's an entrepreneur to do? Well, get a lawyer like Mr. Baird. So rather than tell his clients if they ask, nope, sorry, that is illegal, lawyer Baird used his specialized skills in another way. He knew there was an exception to the rule for sales of this stuff. It could be sold for research purposes. And so he advised his clients that if they got purchasers to sign off on an internet form that they were ordering these chemicals for research purposes, it was all good, and they could all make some money. 
Here's the thing. It was an obvious scam, of course. No one was doing any research. And Baird's clients advertised these research-use-only substances on Internet sites for, wait for it, bodybuilders, not research chemists or people running laboratories who might be looking for supplies. This, the government alleged, was nothing more than Lawyer Baird using his expertise not to give his clients legitimate advice, but as part of their criminal enterprise. The closest analogy wouldn't be a lawyer who represented you in your divorce or who gave you advice about drawing up your will. It's Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad advising genius meth chemist Walter White how to hide his illegal millions made from making meth by buying a car wash. For all of this, Lawyer Baird has gotten not profits, but trouble. The whole thing was busted by the feds, and Lawyer Baird now has a nice big conviction on his record for conspiracy to defraud the United States Food and Drug Administration. His co-defendants in the scheme are convicted as well for conspiracy to commit money laundering and delivery of misbranded drugs. One of them got 10 months in prison and another four. Lawyer Baird's sentence, one year of probation, but no time in prison. I suppose some will say that is appropriate. His role was not as important in the scheme as was the role of people actually selling the harmful and illegal drugs. But some, like me, might disagree. If anything, Lawyer Baird's role is more important. Without his big brain and his law degree and his specialized knowledge of what the FDA regulations did or did not permit, these salesmen might not have been able to pull the scheme off. Baird didn't help them comply with the rules. He used his learning and credentials to help them get around the rules and break them so they could sell this harmful garbage to people. In the end, that isn't just a crime. It's a crime on steroids. And that closes another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And with it, we wrap up another episode of Criminal Injustice subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed, if you haven't done that already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website. That's criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Go to the Ask Dave area on our website, and I'll see if I can give it a whack on the show. You can also call in your question by leaving us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. The number to do that is 412-407-3389. Again, 412-407-3389. Remember, we are listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help do that, by going to patreon.com slash criminal injustice. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. The news is out. 2020 saw a 30% rise in murders nationwide. And 2021 isn't looking so good either. Some want us to turn back to the aggressive policing of the past. But is there a better way to stem the tide of gun violence? What actually works? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. <laughs>